And O Lord, as we now come to Your Word, we thank You for Your Word. We remember that Your Word is sufficient, inerrant, inspired, breathed out by You. It's infallible. It's unassailable. And it tells us everything that we need to know about You and about ourselves. And so we pray, O Lord, that You would feed us now with Your Word. That You would speak in a way that we would hear the shepherd, the good shepherd, calling to us. And that by the power of Your Holy Spirit working in us, we would not only have an intellectual understanding, but that we would have a desire to yield ourselves to what Your Word instructs. That Christ will be glorified in our lives. Bless this time. Use this time to strengthen Your people and to glorify Christ. In His name we pray. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles, please turn to Psalm 54. You may also want to keep a finger in 1 Samuel chapter 23, uh, which we read for our Scripture reading today. Um, both of those are connected, and, and we'll see that as we, uh, as we go through this psalm. But today we will be looking at Psalm 54. Um, some of you know that the past couple of months have been really, really trying for me. That over the course of the past couple of months, I've, I've experienced some trials that uh, I haven't really felt the magnitude of since about 2013. In 2013, um, this church almost died. This church almost fell completely apart as uh, several people left. And it was so stressful for me uh, I, you know, people hold their stress in different places. Some people hold it in their heart and they have a heart attack. Some people hold it in their, their necks and they get headaches and migraines and things like that. Me, I hold it in my back. And it was so stressful that for nine months, I couldn't bend over to tie my shoes. In fact, I even had to sit up here as I, uh, as I preached because I couldn't stand for more than two or three minutes at a time. All because of stress. But these trials I've learned over the years through not only uh, my experiences, but more specifically through the Scriptures and my study of the Scriptures, our trials are all blessings. Because they teach us to rely less on ourselves. And they really show us the weakness of the flesh in a way that good times can't possibly even touch. Seeing our trials as blessings is a contrarian way of thinking, and I understand that. But at the same time, as we study Psalm 54 today, I think you'll start to see, hopefully, uh, the same thing, that trials can actually be great blessings. You know, one of the reasons that I find uh, the idea... Uh, that, uh, that if you become a Christian, all your problems will just go away. One of the reasons I find that so offensive is that there is not a single character in all of Scripture whose life is a testimony to that. And it's certainly not a testimony of my life. That's not how my life has gone. Uh, it definitely has not uh, been easier. In fact, sometimes being a Christian invites very unique problems into our lives. If you want to be faithful to Scripture, you're going to have conflict. There's going to be friction as you stand by what God says and say, you know, I'm going to do things God's way instead of man's way. God never promises clear skies and, and calm waters 
uh, and smooth sailing, so to speak. God never promises to improve our circumstances. Try telling that to you know Paul as he was imprisoned and, and chained to a guard. Uh, he never promises that we won't have thorns that poke at us and that, that lodge in our flesh. But His Word does assure us that we can face all of life's difficulties, all of life's problems, all of life's trials, and that His grace in those times will always be sufficient. What He promises is that whatever our circumstances are, A, He has ordained them. If you're going through a trial, He's ordained it. If you're on a mountaintop, He's ordained that too. He ordains all of our circumstances in life. And B, He's ensuring that everything in our life, every circumstance that we face, every trial that we go through, every affliction that makes us feel like we're just about to sink, it's all causing us to grow in the likeness of Christ. And therefore, we need not fear. You know, it's not odd for a Christian, even the most faithful Christian you can possibly imagine, to experience trials and afflictions and hardships in life. We see this in the life of every major character in Scripture, including Jesus. What is odd is to find a Christian who would say that he has never faced any difficulties since becoming a Christian. He is either delusional, or he's not being completely honest with himself, or he just became a Christian like five minutes ago. (laughs) Give it time. In Matthew chapter 10, verse 20, Jesus warns his followers, saying this, he says, You will be hated by all because of my name. In his farewell discourse, which we studied uh, last year in John chapter four, chapters 14 to 16, he says in chapter 15, verses 18 to 20, he says, If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. See, to claim immunity from difficulties in life, as some Christians tend to do for whatever reason, to claim immunity from that, to claim immunity from persecution, to claim immunity from afflictions and trials, is essentially to either claim to be greater than the Master, the Lord Jesus Christ, or it's to call Him a liar. Now this is going to sound really strange. Bear with me for a second. To claim immunity from difficulties in life is also to claim immunity from rich heavenly blessings. Let me say that again. To claim immunity from the difficulties of life is also to claim immunity from rich heavenly sanctifying blessings. And I say that because trials have a way of burning off and stripping away any remaining confidence that we have in ourselves, in our flesh. And they teach us, maybe even force us, to rely on God with a fuller, deeper faith. Nothing can accomplish that the way that afflictions and trials do. 
Not only is this the normal experience for Christians, but it was also where David found himself. On how many occasions? How many times did David find himself at the end of himself, forced to rely completely on God? I mean, it happened over and over again. He'd find himself right smack dab in the middle of one crisis after another that was so much bigger than David himself was, so much bigger than David was capable of handling by himself. And that's the situation that sets the context for the psalm that we come to today. Now, it's actually very appropriate that Psalm 54 follows right after Psalm 53, If you remember, Psalm 53 was kind of a diagnosis of humanity's condition. It starts off with uh, David either saying or being quoted as saying, depending on who you think the author of Psalm 53 was, that uh, the fool says in his heart there is no God. Remember, that psalm was not about atheists. That psalm was about people who live their lives as if God doesn't exist. As if they will not have to stand before Him in judgment one day. Those are the true fools of this world. That's what Psalm 53 was all about. And in Psalm 54, those are the types of people that David is writing about. They're the types of people who have betrayed him. They've turned on him. And now they have surrounded him. Psalm 53 ends with the hope of the saints. And Psalm 54, written by David, David is one of the saints. So he shows us that hope. So Psalm 54 is a psalm of lament. We'd call it a psalm of lament because he's writing it from a position of being in distress. And uh, he's in a position where he's experiencing sorrow. It's a psalm for anyone who feels deserted who feels discarded, dumped, or duped by someone you trusted or should have been able to trust. Maybe that was a close friend. Maybe it was your parents. Maybe it's your spouse. Maybe it's your children. It's a psalm for somebody who feels isolated, hopeless, and alone. It's a psalm for anyone also who isn't feeling any of those things right now. Because you can be sure that there's a good chance that one day you will feel that way. And in this psalm, David shows us how to deal with this kind of situation in a way that honors God. So the point of this psalm is that in, every, uh, in any and every painful trial, God is faithful to us and can be trusted even when nobody else can be. And He is a refuge for His people. Now, as you look at Psalm 54, you'll probably notice that there is a very lengthy inscription. That's the the stuff that comes uh, between where it says Psalm 54 and where verse 1 actually uh, starts in the Bible, but the the inscription is inspired too. Uh, So we're going to start with that. That's an important part of the text here as it sets the context for this particular psalm. So the inscription here says, I guess you might say the first part of verse 1 says this. It says, For the choir director on stringed instruments, a maskil of David, when the Ziphites came and said to Saul, Is not David hiding himself among us? So we're reminded there that psalms are meant for singing, which is why we sing psalms here. Uh, on stringed instruments, a maskil. A maskil is uh, basically a, a something wise. It's a demonstration of wisdom. But the situation 
described here is something that takes place in both 1 Samuel chapter 23 and 1 Samuel chapter 26. In 1 Samuel 23, we read about the Philistines uh, attacking a Jewish border town called Keilah. We read in verse 2, So David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I go and attack these Philistines? And the Lord said to David, Go and attack the Philistines and deliver Keilah. We read in verse 5, So David and his men went to Keilah and fought with the Philistines, and he led away their livestock and struck them with a great slaughter. Thus David delivered the inhabitants of Keilah. He might have looked like something of a hero, but what he was doing was obviously under God's hand and provision. So God used David to deliver uh, the, the inhabitants of Keilah. Now, Keilah was a walled city, meaning it was surrounded by, uh, by a wall that was an ancient uh, line of defense, a good line of defense. But it also meant that once you were in there and the gates closed... It was essentially like a jail. Once you were in there, you're in there if the gates are closed. And so uh, King Saul, who was hunting David down and seeking to take David's life, therefore proclaimed when he heard the news that David was in Keilah, Saul was excited. He says in verse 7, God has delivered him into my hand, for he shut himself in by entering a city with double gates and bars. He realizes that if he can get there, David is going to be trapped inside these walls. Now, of course, Saul was the king of Israel, but he wasn't the king that God had appointed for Israel or anointed for Israel. God had chosen David to be Israel's king after having uh, anointed Saul as king, but Saul uh, was unfaithful and unbelieving, and so the anointing was taken away from him. David was God's anointed replacement. Saul, being a godless and unprincipled fool, kind of like the fools that we read about back in chapter or in Psalm 53, uh, he therefore sought to murder David. In Saul's mind, he was thinking, okay, if I can just get David out of the way, if I can eliminate David, I can remain king. And so he's thinking that if he's just quick enough, if he's just good enough, that he can thwart all of God's plans. Does that sound like the actions of a fool? Yes, it does. It tells us everything that we need to know about the kind of man that King Saul was. What kind of madman, what kind of absolute fool would think that it's within the realm of possibilities for him to thwart God's plans? God's plans can't be thwarted. That was something King Nebuchadnezzar had to learn and and come to terms with the hard way back in Daniel chapter 4, but... Certainly Saul is going to come to terms with that as well in a much more difficult way than Nebuchadnezzar did. So David is told that Saul, uh, told by somebody that Saul is coming to Keilah to look for him. And David inquires of God to determine whether the inhabitants of Keilah will protect him. After all, you know, he, he was the one who just stood up for them. He was the one who just intervened and, and saved them, delivered them. Won't they do the same for him? Wouldn't you think that they would feel some sort of obligation to protect the man who has just protected and defended and delivered them? You would think they would, but God tells David, no, they won't. 
So David leaves the city before Saul arrives, and he went to a place that was about 12 miles away, about 12 miles south, <clears throat> into the mountainous and remote region of Ziph. Uh, it was a small area in the tribe of Judah, the area of Judah. Uh, we read in First uh, Samuel 23 verse 14, David stayed in the wilderness in the strongholds and remained in the hill country in the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul sought him every day, but God did not deliver him into his hand. But that looks like it's going to change by the time we get to verses 19 and 20 where we read this. It says, Then <clears throat> Ziphites came up to Saul at Gibeah, saying, Is David not hiding with us in the strongholds at Horesh on the hill of Hashilah, which is on the south side of Jeshimon? Now then, O king, come down according to all the desire of your soul to do so, and our part shall be to surrender him into the king's hand. They're ready to turn on David even though they're in the tribe of Judah, just like David is. Saul didn't waste a moment. He said back to these godless Ziphites in verses 21 and 22, May you be blessed of the Lord. What a funny thing for a godless man to say. May you be blessed of the Lord, for you have had compassion on me. Now go, make more sure, and investigate, and see his place where his haunt is, and who has seen him there, for I am told that he is very cunning. So Saul pursues David out of Horesh into the wilderness of Maon before he was forced to turn back, before Saul was forced to actually turn back and defend Israel against the Philistines who were coming in from the north in another raid on Israel. So David and his men returned to the region of Ziph once again, once Saul had retreated to go and defend Israel. And it wasn't long before the battle with the Philistines was over and Saul returned back to Ziph and the, the chase resumed. In 1 Samuel chapter 26, verse 1, we read this, Then the Ziphites came to Saul at Gibeah, saying, Is not David hiding on the hill of Hashalah, which is before Jeshimon? Repeating the same thing. Same things happening over again. What a terrible, terrible thing to do and what a terrible context that sets for this psalm. This must have been an absolutely miserable, terrifying time in David's life. And yet it was a season of incredible blessing for David as he goes through trials like this one. Because this was a season in which he saw the hand of God deliver him and sustain him time after time after time. Over and over again, we see his enemies would have cornered him in an apparent checkmate only for God to intervene and to do something to deliver David. He couldn't even trust in his own tribesmen is what we learn here. The Ziphites, as he attempted to hide in the wilderness in their region. This is the situation that provides the context for this specific psalm, Psalm 54, to be written. While it might have looked like David's greatest enemy in this moment was King Saul, this psalm wasn't even, it doesn't even mention King Saul, not by name anyway. It really wasn't written out of concern for him. Instead, what the inscription tells us is that David is concerned about the way that his own tribesmen, the Ziphites, rejected and turned against him. They betrayed him. They wanted him dead at least just as badly as King Saul did. So David is feeling betrayed. 
Can you relate to that? Have you ever been betrayed? Have you ever felt abandoned or forsaken or, or betrayed by somebody you thought you should have been able to trust? Let me tell you, just speaking from my own experience, it is the worst feeling in the world. Betrayal is, is absolutely gut-wrenching. I, I've been disliked by people before. I don't have a problem with people disliking me. Uh, it, it's not that big of a deal. It happens. And Jesus said that it'll happen. The world will hate you. Okay, I, I can deal with that. But when people that you trust suddenly turn on you, or suddenly abandon you, or blatantly betray you, it's one of the absolute worst feelings in the world. Or maybe you know what it's like to be surrounded by people who just don't like you. Maybe even people who despise you. That's something that has always been, again, very normal for Christians to experience. The unregenerate man has a completely irrational hatred of God and therefore, by extension, God's people. Richard Wormbrand experienced this, and he said this. He said, quote, there's something wrong with the Christian who's not hated, end quote. In the words of A.W. Tozer, quote, to be right with God has often meant to be in trouble with men, end quote. Or take what Spurgeon said. He said, quote, if you have room for Christ, then from this day forth, remember, the world has no room for you, end quote. And this, of course, is exactly what Jesus said would happen. This is the testimony of faithful saints throughout the church age, throughout history, including David in his time. That has always been the experience with God's people. It was definitely something that David went through over and over again. And if you are shining in the world as you ought to be, it will be your experience too. Not because there's anything wrong with you though, but because unregenerate, unbelieving man loves the darkness. And how dare you try to shine light in the darkness. The most important lesson I think we can glean from this psalm, in my opinion, is that David's first solution, whenever he went through something like this, whether it was betrayal or just where he was cornered, whenever he was confronted with a problem that he wasn't sure how to solve, whenever he was surrounded by enemies, his first line of defense was to go to the Lord in prayer. And that's exactly what we see David model for us in this psalm by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in verses uh, 1 to 3. So let's continue looking at verses 1 to 3. David writes, Save me, O God, by your name, and vindicate me by your power. Hear my prayer, O God. Give ear to the words of my mouth, for strangers have risen against me. And violent men have sought my life. They have not set God before them. Selah. So his first petition in this prayer is found immediately as he opens this prayer. He asks God to save him. He says, by your name. This is the first thing that he models for us to do when he's surrounded by his enemies and feeling helpless. Now, what does it actually mean for God to save us by His name? What does it mean to be saved by God's name? A, a name to us, it's really not that big of a deal. 
I mean, my, my birth name is Tobias. I go by Toby. I don't care what people call me, honestly. People call me Tony all the time. It, it doesn't matter to me. But in the ancient world, it was very significant. In David's time, a name basically summed up what a person uh, was or who a person was. It would sum up their personality. It would sum up their, their character, their ability, their desire or their purpose, etc., so this was part of the significance whenever we see God uh, giving somebody a new name, as he did with Jacob, for example, uh, whom God renamed Israel. Uh, it meant that the person has a new direction in life, a new purpose. Uh, think of Peter. Uh, his name uh, was Simon until Jesus met him, and he's like, I'm going to call you Peter, because it meant rock. Something about Peter's personality and what he would be uh, from that point on and in his new purpose. Now, of course, God's name, God's name is Yahweh or Jehovah. That's the name that God revealed to, uh, to Moses in the story of the burning bush. In Exodus chapter 3, verse 13, Moses inquires of God. He says, Behold, I am going to the sons of Israel, and I will say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. Now they may say to me, what is his name? And he says, what shall I say to them? Now God could have just said, tell them God, Adonai, or Elohim, uh, sent you. But instead, God responds in that verse, verse 14, by saying, I am who I am. And he said, thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. This is, as you can easily see in, in, the, in the text, it's in the, the present tense. It says so much about who God is. It reveals God as being the one who dwells in the eternal present. The one who has no before and after. The one who has no beginning or end. The one who never changes, who never learns. It implies His self-existence. It implies His self-sufficiency. He doesn't need anyone. He doesn't answer to anyone. It also therefore reveals His supreme sovereignty. His name alone speaks volumes, literally, about who He is. So when David says, save me by your name, he's asking God to use everything at his disposal, all that God is, to save David. It's a way of adding emphasis, you might say. He knew that God had to be the one to save him and that if God didn't intervene, if God didn't deliver him, if God didn't do something, it was game over for David. And that put David into a, a a position of absolute desperation, don't you think? But before whom? Before whom is he in a position of desperation? He's the one that's determining who he's going to be in a position of desperation before. He's not in a position of desperation before men, but before God. He's not pleading with men for his life. He's pleading with God for his life. And that, friends... That tells us that being in a position of desperation before God is a very, very good place for us to be. In fact, it's a blessing for our hearts to be in a position, a state of desperation before the Lord. It's better to be in a, in a state or a position of desperation before God than to be in a position of desperation before men. 
And if you put yourself in a position of desperation before God, you don't have to put yourself in a position of desperation before men. David continues, and and vindicate me by your power, he says. The implication being that David is an innocent man, and so he's praying for God to prove his innocence, to prove David's innocence, by intervening and delivering him. And so he says, hear my prayer, O God. Now that might seem, if if you've got your theology about God pretty solid, that might sound like kind of a silly thing to say, maybe even a useless thing to say. After all, we know that God knows all things, right? He hears even the silent thoughts of our hearts. He hears everything. He knows everything. He doesn't learn anything. He knows it all before it even happens. So to say, God, hear my prayer, why would you need to say that if you know that God already knows everything and He already assures us that He will hear? And I'd say that it's because there's a sense in which God doesn't hear. It's not that He doesn't hear in a literal sense, but it's more like He doesn't act upon or he doesn't heed it's not that he's hindered from hearing us but that we can do things that hinder him so to speak from responding such as what sinning sin that we haven't repented of sin that we haven't turned from why would god bless the person who is doing things that god hates uh, and only provokes his wrath why would he bless a person who's doing that that's the gist of what God is saying when He said through the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah 59, 1-3. He says, Behold, the Lord's hand is not so short that it cannot save, nor His ear so dull that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden His face from you so that He does not hear. For your hands are defiled with blood, and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken falsehood, and your tongue mutters wickedness. So, in a literal sense, yes, God hears everything, but in this figure of speech that God does not hear, it's more He doesn't act because you've put something in the way that would prohibit Him from acting in a way that blesses you. As you ask God to hear your prayer, it's important to keep this in mind and to ask yourself, is there any reason whatsoever that God would not hear my prayer? And if the answer is yes, it's because I've sinned and I haven't really been honest or open with God about it, I haven't laid it out before Him, I haven't confessed it to Him, it's still on me, well, there you go. There's your chance to confess it right then and there. So the implication in David's prayer is that God, uh, God would hear him because David has examined himself and has found no guilt or wrongdoing. Uh, this should also remind us that God loves to listen to the prayers of His people. He loves to listen to our prayers. He doesn't ever grow tired or weary of us coming to Him in prayer. We are actually far, far quicker to grow tired and weary of praying than God is to grow tired and weary of listening. So whether you're experiencing the disloyalty or the betrayal uh, of being forsaken, or if you're just worried about being surrounded by people who have made themselves your enemies, the answer, as David shows us here by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, 
is always, always, always to take it to the Lord in prayer. Cast your anxieties upon Him, for He cares for you, is what Peter said as he quotes Psalm 55, which we'll get to next month. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Ask Him to hear you. Ask Him to deliver you. Ask Him to vindicate you. As long as God's ears are open to you, don't ever let your circumstances or your enemies convince you to remain silent toward Him. You may have no weapon. You may have no defense. But if God is on your side, whom shall you fear? If God is for you, who can stand against you? David closes his prayer by describing his situation to God. He says, For strangers have risen against me, and violent men have sought my life. They have not set God before them. And this is where we realize the connection between the fool in Psalm 53 and David's enemies here in Psalm 54. Because the very definition of a fool, according to Psalm 53, is when a person refuses to live their life as if God exists, or refuses to live their life as if they'll have to give an account to God for every deed and every word they have spoken And so they order their lives and they live their lives as if there is no God. That certainly describes uh, King Saul, but it also describes the Ziphites. Those who were loyal to Saul and his evil plans and conquests, his attempts to thwart God's purposes. See, they weren't only David's enemies, but as people who lived as if God didn't exist, they were also God's enemies. David is reminding God that David isn't the only one, therefore, with a vested interest in this situation. Yes, they're David's enemies, but they are also enemies of God. These men who were acting like strangers and aliens toward David should have been acting like brothers, should have been acting like compatriots. Because they were fellow tribesmen. They were all from the tribe of Judah. They were fellow countrymen. Why would they be plotting and scheming for the death of God's anointed one, the one whom God had chosen to be Israel's king? Why would they be plotting against him? Because they hate God just as much as Saul does. Because they are wicked, wretched men who had no interest in honoring God's anointing of David. Now the verse ends with the word Selah. Hopefully by this point, as we've uh, now made our way into the middle of the 53rd Psalm, and we've gone through all the Psalms almost, uh, hopefully you understand that that word is a signal for us to stop and to reflect and to consider how what has been said at this point might apply to us. Now it's good for us to bring our concerns to God. It's good for us to to pray to God, especially when we are in a position uh, of desperation. And if you're faithful to the Lord, there will be times when you will undoubtedly feel like David did. You'll feel the weight of being surrounded by wicked people who hate you simply because they hate God. It's so irrational. And when I say that, when I say that if you're faithful, you'll get there, you'll have a situation like that, I say that because it's possible to actually avoid that kind of issue, that kind of confrontation, that kind of problem. All you have to do 
is be unfaithful to the Lord. All you have to do is compromise. Be a man pleaser instead of a God pleaser and a lot of your problems will go away. The world will just leave you alone if you'll be a man pleaser instead of a God pleaser. Now the man pleasers aren't difficult to identify. They're the ones that say, you know, we need to keep those exceptions for rape and incest. Uh, they'll say, you know, we need to stand uh, with the, the, the people who are, who are victims, um, even though they aren't victims of anything specific. Uh, they'll say that we need to do things like practice uh, pronoun hospitality. If you haven't heard that one, uh, yeah, look for that term on, um, on the internet when you get home. We need to practice pronoun hospitality, but you need to know that if you choose to compromise in this manner, it will always involve acting like the fool that Psalm 53 was all about. And you'd better believe that there will be consequences at some point of some sort for that compromise. But if you are faithful, if you hold the line, if you refuse to compromise with the world, there will be times when you'll be able to say with the psalmist who wrote Psalm 69, those who hate me without a cause are more than the hairs of my head. Those who would destroy me are powerful, being wrongfully my enemies. And you'll need to know how to do what David has done here by taking his concerns to God in prayer before he did anything else and just trusting that your prayers have been heard and that they are safely in God's hands. When we do this, when we do what David has already modeled for us, that, that's the end of his prayer. Now we move on. But when you do this, when you pray like David has prayed, you get to experience the same kind of peaceful confidence that David experienced as he continued writing this psalm. Let's continue looking at verses 4 and 5. He continues writing, Behold, God is my helper. The Lord is the sustainer of my soul. He will recompense the evil to my foes. Destroy them in your faithfulness. Can you sense, do you, do you get a sense of the size of the shift that has taken place between verses 3 and 4? Does this even sound like the same person who's facing the same circumstances in life? I mean, David's attitude and his outlook on life are completely different all of a sudden as soon as we hit verse 4. Why? What has changed between verses 3 and 4? Nothing externally, nothing outwardly that we know of other than the fact that David has taken his problems to the Lord in prayer. But here's what I want you to see. What was David focused on in verses 1 to 3 as he was praying? He's focused on his problems. He's focused on this trial. He's focused on this, this affliction, this difficult, impossible situation that he's confronted with. But by taking all of his problems to the Lord, what is he now focused on when he hits verse 4? Or on whom is he focused? And that's what makes all the difference. That's where his sense of confidence comes from. That's where his sense of peace 
comes from. See, it's, it's possible for us to become so consumed by our problems and by our enemies and by the situations that we're facing that we just remain steadfastly fixed on those things. But focusing on God has a way of making all of our problems, all of our difficulties seem irrelevant. At the very least, remembering how big and how great and how awesome our God is makes our problems seem small and minute by comparison. Is anything too difficult for God? Is there any problem that you can bring to God where He'd say, wow, I have no idea what to do about the problem that you're in today? It might seem like it. I know that in the, in the midst of a trial, that's sometimes how it feels. But think about it. Think about who God is. Is anything too great? Is anything impossible for God? Is there any problem that we face that He can't handle? Is the grace and the strength that He fills us with in the midst of trials and tribulations, is it ever insufficient? The answers, respectively, are no, no, and no. No, no, and no. God's grace is always sufficient. There's an absolute danger in just fixating ourselves on our problems. There's a danger in wallowing in our misery. That danger being that we just remain fixated on our problems. That we never lift our eyes up to the Lord. Don't fall into that snare, friends. Don't fall into that trap. At this point in the psalm, we see that David is confident that he's encouraged. And this is exactly why. Because taking his problems to the Lord had a way of moving his attention from his problems to the Lord. And so he's confident. Why why shouldn't he be? How could he not be? And if you can see the connection, if you can see the cause and effect relationship here, you can follow David's example and have similar results. Get your eyes off of your problems. Set your mind instead on the Lord. Remember who He is. Remember His name. Remember what He can do. Remember what He can't do. He's never unfaithful. He never lies. He's always faithful to His promises. So pray His promises from Scripture. Take those promises and pray them to Him. Not that He needs to be reminded, but maybe you do. Set your mind on the Lord. It's where your mind belongs anyway. This is one of the major problems that I've been recently convicted of on social media, at least lately. A lot of people that I follow on social media, are they're, they're very doctrinally sound people. They've got all their doctrine right. They love the Lord. I have no doubt about that. But some of them, I've noticed, really like to draw attention to significant problems in the American church. And I'm not going to deny that there are problems in the American church. There always have been. There always will be. If you can find a church that has no problems, don't become a member because you'll bring your problems there. No, they're... There are always going to be problems in the church, but some people, all they remain fixated on, if you look at their social media timelines, is problems in the church. And so before you know it, they're doing nothing but sharing posts uh, by heretics to point out who the heretics are and uh, you know, posts about this is happening or that's happening. And there's a place for that. I don't deny that there's a place for that, but here's the thing. 
it can very easily become all-consuming. Where it just takes over your mind. And I say that as somebody who loves apologetics, who studied apologetics in seminary, and that was one of the problems that I ran into. I'm, I'm refuting this or that you know, false teaching, right? And so all I'm doing is thinking about this false teaching. I'm the type that, that wants to see Christians using discernment. I'm the type that wants to see Christians fleeing from error. But at the same time, I have an understanding based on my own experience and based on what I see uh, in other Christians that you can't remain fixated on those things for too long. Apologetics is great. Defending and understanding the faith is great. Pointing out error, yes, there's a place for it. But it can, it can very easily become like just staring into an endless garbage dumpster after a while. Meanwhile, the Lord tells us in Philippians 4.8, whatever is true whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellent and if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. See, there's nothing true, there's nothing honorable, pure, or lovely about staring into an endless proverbial garbage dumpster. You know that, right? So why are we so inclined to set our minds on those types of things? It's the same reason that we set our minds on our problems. In David's case, laying out his problems before God is what set his mind on what is true, what is honorable, etc. We would be wise to follow the example that David sets for us here. And so it's with a sense of peaceful confidence now that David prays of God in verse 5, He will recompense the evil to my foes. Destroy them in your faithfulness. Wow, destroy them in your faithfulness. What a surprise that so many commentators have a problem with the psalmist saying that, with David saying that. They'll say, oh, you know, but, but Jesus uh, showed us a better way. Jesus told us to, to love our enemies. Listen, I'm not saying that you shouldn't love your enemies. And David certainly wouldn't have said, uh, don't love your enemies. Jesus never contradicted a single word that the Old Testament contains. Do you know that? So, so when he says, pray for your enemies, or love your enemies, he's not contradicting anything that David ever said in Scripture. N not even once. So, so it's very unwise to set one passage of Scripture against another. In fact, it's downright foolish because Scripture never contradicts itself, contrary to what liberal or progressive Christians who do things like setting Paul against Jesus think. In fact, we can love our enemies and still pray that God would stop them from committing evil actions. Indeed, is that not what love should do? If you know somebody who's committing great evil, shouldn't you pray that God would stop them? If, if not for, for your own safety or for your own good, for their own good, because they will have to give an account before God one day for their actions. So is it not what love must do? If the alternative is that they would continue to commit evil actions for which God will one day hold them accountable? I mean, we're talking about David here. We're talking about a man who's described as being a man after God's own heart. The same David who had a chance to take things into his own hands and didn't. He had a chance to kill Saul. 
when Saul was hunting him, when, when Saul stepped into a cave for a uh, potty break, whatever you want to call it, and, and the cave was the, the same cave that David and his men happened to be hiding in. Uh, what a great opportunity. David had a chance to destroy his enemy, but he didn't. In fact, he refused to take matters into his own hands. Contrast that with the ways that Abram would take matters into his own hands. He'd lie and say that his wife was actually his sister, or he'd, uh, he'd have relations with his wife's servant so that they could have a child. That was Abram taking matters into his own hands. No, David wouldn't take matters into his own hands. And by praying for the downfall of those who do evil, neither are we. Neither are we. We must both love our neighbor and care about justice. In fact, you can do both at the same time. So confident that God has heard him, Uh, confident that God will surely rescue him, David continues by moving to praising God as he concludes the psalm. Let's look at verses 6 and 7. He says, Willingly I will sacrifice to you. I will give thanks to your name, O Lord, for it is good. For he has delivered me from all trouble, and my eye has looked with satisfaction upon my enemies." David is so confident that God is going to deliver him that he says this in the past tense, as if it's already happened, even though as far as we can tell, it hasn't happened yet. So why is David that confident? Why does he have this confidence that God will rescue him? Well, if you still got a, a, a thumb or a finger in Samuel, 1 Samuel 23, Uh, There was a time when Saul was coming to look for David, and Jonathan, who was King Saul's son, comes to David, and he says this in 1 Samuel 23, 17. He says, Do not be afraid, because the hand of Saul my father will not find you, and you will be king over Israel, and I will be next to you, and Saul my father knows that also. How does Jonathan know that? How does Jonathan, how could he possibly know that David was going to be king over Israel? Because God had said so. Because God had said so. And so Jonathan was right. Because God's purposes can't be thwarted. And David knew it. He knew that God would rescue him. Because God's purposes can't be stopped. They can't be thwarted. Even by an evil, wayward king like King Saul. So David promises what's called a A free will offering unto God. That's a sacrifice that isn't made to atone for sin, but is simply a way to thank and to praise God. And he promises this in advance. But the fact that he makes this promise in advance doesn't mean that the offering is contingent on God's faithful deliverance. Excuse me. He doesn't say, in other words, he doesn't say, if you do this, God, I will do that. No, he knows that God will do it. Because he knows who God is. And he's already experienced God's help on how many occasions before this point. So David began this psalm in the pits of despair, but he cast his cares on God He reminded himself of who God is. And having done this, his heart is now filled not only with confidence, but with praise and thanksgiving. 
This is exactly, by the way, how Jesus also found peace when he was crucified by his enemies. This is why Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2 says that Jesus, for the joy set before him, endured the cross. Jesus had prayed for deliverance the night before, and yet he balanced that prayer by saying, yet not my will, but yours be done. And it was, just as it always will be. Friends, in any and every painful trial, God is faithful to us and can be trusted even when nobody else can be. He's a refuge for His people. Though we might be dragged by strong currents into deep, deep waters, God will sustain us through them. God is not only good when the sun is shining. No, God is good and God is just and God is gracious and God is worthy of all praise and honor in every season and in every situation in life, including seasons of painful loss and including seasons of betrayal and loneliness. Remember God's faithfulness to you in the past. Has He been faithful to you before? Has He been faithful to you to provide what was necessary to reconcile you to God? Did he not did the Father not crush his only son, the Lord Jesus Christ, in order that he wouldn't have to crush you? With the Apostle Paul, we can triumphantly say, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? Did who, who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he also, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? There's that confidence showing up again in Paul, who lived in a culture that was very hostile toward the Christian faith. How could he have this confidence? Because he knew God. And he knew what God could do. And he trusted God, and that was enough. God's grace was sufficient. It is confident trust in this truth and confidence that God will supply us with all the grace and all the strength that we need that will uphold us and sustain us through fiery trials, all to the glory of Him who works all things for the good of His people. Let's go to Him in prayer. Our Father, we thank You again for Your Word. We thank You for the way that You fill Your people with hope and confidence when our situations and our circumstances would force us to feel like we should be in despair. Thank You for the assurance that You are causing all things to work together for the good of those who love You and are called according to Your purposes. We pray, O Lord, that You would give us confidence not only in seasons when life is not filled with difficulties, but especially in seasons when life is difficult. Teach us, O Lord, by all means, by any means necessary, to rely more on You, to seek Your face more and more, and help us to become more like Christ in this way. In His name we pray. Amen.